That's an awesome song as we head into our passage this morning in Daniel chapter 9, verses 20 through 27. This uh, couple weeks ago, uh, Pastor Stephen was preaching for us here the week before Easter Sunday. Um, I had a unique opportunity that Sunday. I was out of town. Uh, I was speaking out in Kentucky at Answers in Genesis at the Ark Encounter. Uh, have you guys ever been? Have you seen Noah's Ark? Uh, I had a chance to go and visit Noah's Ark in Kentucky. Uh, absolutely incredible. If you ever get the chance to go and check this out, it is awesome, and it will just blow your mind and bring the story, the reality of Noah and his flood from the early chapters of Genesis. It brings it to light in a whole new way, uh, and you just see how, how God's word was real and true and how it all came to pass. Uh, great experience. Well, I was there speaking. Uh, they had a national women's conference. I got to be one of the speakers at this. It was really a great, great time. But, uh, you know, the highlight for me, I would have to say, really was getting a chance to spend some time touring the ark and walking through, seeing all the exhibits. And one of the things that was really just impressed upon me as I traveled through uh, this this massive this massive uh, display that that is Noah's ark. There, uh, I was really impressed on the reality of how Noah's ark really is an, an archetype of what God's salvation story is all about throughout the whole pages of the Bible from from beginning to end. The, the whole story of Noah's Ark is about God's holiness, God's sovereignty, and, and how we as humans have rebelled against him. We, we've turned our backs on him. We've gone our way instead of his way. And God, in his holiness, requires justice for our sin. He's a just God. He won't let our sin and our rebellion go unpunished. And so God in his justice, he prophesied to know that a flood is coming and I'm going to destroy this world in a flood because of its wickedness. But God is also a God of amazing grace. And so while God had prophesied destruction to Noah, God also provided a way for salvation. He gave Noah the instructions of how to build this ark, how to preserve a remnant of all the different species on earth, how to preserve a, a family remnant that would repopulate the earth. And God in his grace gave Noah this ark as a means of deliverance, a means of salvation. And then we see God's faithfulness and how he kept his promises to Noah and how he kept his promises to humanity. And, and it's just an incredible story of God's uh, sovereignty, his holiness, his prophetic word, his amazing grace. And as we know, these are themes that we see played out all throughout Scripture from the very beginning to the very end. In fact, we've seen these themes in our study in the book of Daniel so far here in, in, in the past few weeks. And we're going to see these themes again very clearly this morning as we turn to one of the most, probably the, in my opinion, the greatest prophetic passage in all of Scripture that points us to these very realities, God's sovereignty, his holiness, his amazing grace, his prophetic word about what's going to come to pass in the future. These are all themes that we see here in our passage this morning, Daniel chapter 9, verses 20 through 27. Just to provide some context on where we are again, I've showed you this timeline here in the past, but where are we in Daniel's life and ministry in Babylon? Daniel has now been in Babylon here in chapter 9 over 65 years. He was taken in captivity in 605 BC. He was probably a 15-year-old teenage boy. He's now been living and serving and ministering in Babylon 65 years. And in chapter 9, 
the, the Medo Persian Empire has just conquered the Babylonian Empire. They've taken over. Daniel, again, is serving as an 80 year old man here in Babylon, now for the Medo Persian Empire, when he receives the prophecy of chapter 9. Now, I want to go back and I want to read the context here for this. Chapter 9, Daniel actually begins in verse 20, reminding us of the context of where this prophecy lands. So if you have your Bibles, open them up to Daniel chapter 9, verses 20 through 27, and we're going to see what this prophecy is all about and the context for where it came from. So Daniel tells us here, starting in verse 20, While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God. Remember, Daniel was in the midst of this prayer. Pastor Stephen talked about Daniel's prayer two weeks ago. And the whole prayer was based on Daniel's study of God's word and Daniel discerning from God's word, the prophet Jeremiah, that the 70-year prophet prophecy of their time in exile in Babylon was right on the verge of being fulfilled. Daniel's sitting here thinking, look at I'm 80 years old. I've been here 65 years. He's studying Jeremiah, recognizing this prophecy is true, and it means it's about to be fulfilled. The 70 years are about to come to pass. And so Daniel's whole prayer in chapter 9 is about God's glory, God's deliverance of his people, confessing their sins, pleading with God that this prophecy would come to pass, that they could go and restore Jerusalem and rebuild the temple, and that God's name would once again be famous throughout the land as a result of these fulfilled prophecies. And so Daniel is praying here. And he goes on and he says in verse 21, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first. Now this is a reference back to chapter 8, where we saw Gabriel appear to Daniel in another prophecy, bringing, bringing to light for Daniel God's word. This is the angel Gabriel explaining to Daniel. He appears to Daniel here once again. And the angel Gabriel, who he saw in this first vision, comes to me in swift light at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, Oh, Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and the prophet, and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and rebuild Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and a moat, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood. And to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Now again, th this is initially 
hard for us to understand what exactly is going on here. But recall, Gabriel came to Daniel specifically to tell him, I have come to give you understanding. And we're going to dive into this prophecy here this morning. And our goal, my goal for us, is that we too would gain understanding about what this is all about. And what we're going to see again is that this is God's prophetic word to his people, to Israel, but also to us, his prophetic word dealing with his sovereignty, his holiness, his amazing grace, prophetic events that are going to come to pass in the future, some which have already come to pass, others which are still yet to come. And again, as I mentioned, this is probably the most significant prophecy in all all of God's word. We're going to seek to unlock God's plan for the ages here together this morning. You know, I know this is a fascinating topic to a lot of people. What, what's going to transpire in the end of the age? What, what is God's plan for the ages? How do we make sense of all of these biblical end times prophecies? And, and what does this particular prophecy have to do with all of that? Well, friends, this prophecy really is the key to unlocking God's plan for the ages. Now, I want to dive into this prophecy this morning. And the first thing I want us to recognize as we begin our study of this section of Scripture is I want us to recognize Daniel's posture here. You know, it's really important. A lot of people rush right past verses 20 to 23 because they're so excited to get to the prophecy of verses 24 through 27. But friends, I think that's a huge mistake when we rush past what's happening here in verses 20 to 23 and Daniel's posture. See, the first question we should be asking as we study this passage is this. Why did God honor Daniel with the prophecy of verses 24 through 27? Why did God honor Daniel with this prophecy? God honored Daniel with this prophecy because Daniel had the right posture before the Lord. And we see that here in, in the opening of our passage, verses 20 through 23. Daniel's posture reveals to us five things. Number one, a man who studied God's word. Remember, this whole prophecy came about as a result of Daniel's prayer, a prayer that was inspired by Daniel's time studying the words of the prophet Jeremiah. If you go back to Daniel chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, Daniel tells us that I perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass, namely 70 years. So Daniel had been studying God's word. He was a man of the word. And it's very interesting, you ask the question, how did Daniel survive and thrive in the foreign land, the hostile land of Babylon for over 65 years? Friends, I think the only answer to that question is because he was sustained by the word of God. Daniel was a man who rooted his life and his trust and his hope in God's word. He, he was a man who understood the, the promise of King David in Psalm 119, 105, where David says, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. That was true for Daniel. And so when Daniel looked at the times and, and all that was going on around him, he interpreted the times by God's signs. 
the signs in God's word. God's word is like a road sign that points us to the right direction, that tells us what's to come. You know, when you're driving down the freeway and you're heading on a trip and you start seeing that the terrain around you starts to change and, and you know, the, the, the culture around you starts to change, you start to recognize, like, I'm not in the same place anymore. And then all of a sudden you come up to a road sign. And the big green road sign tells you, you know, uh, let's say Green Bay, Wisconsin, 20 miles away. And now you know, you know that you're getting close to your destination. Friends, that's what Daniel was doing in the study of God's word. He would look around him. He saw the times were changing and he interpreted the times by the signs in God's word. So he was a man who studied God's word. He was also a man who trusted God's promises Understand this, friends. Daniel believed in the literal fulfillment of God's prophetic word. He read the prophet Jeremiah. He saw that the prophet Jeremiah had decreed through God that there would be 70 years of exile in Babylon. Jeremiah didn't interpret that as metaphorical or symbolic or allegorical. No, he said, when God tells me there's going to be 70 years, I believe that God is giving me literal truth here. And so he interpreted these prophecies literally. They were going to be fulfilled in history. Friends, that's a key clue for us today in how we should interpret the prophecy that we're going to be looking at. These are not symbolic. These are not allegorical. No, there is literal truth that's going to transpire in history. We're going to see. Some of it has already taken place. Some of it is still yet to come. But we're not talking about symbolism here or allegories here. We are talking about literal prophetic truth that God has decreed. Jeremiah believed that. He trusted God's promises. Number three, Jer- uh, Daniel, I'm sorry. Number three, Daniel was a man who sought God's mercy. As Daniel interpreted the times, as he read the signs in God's word, as he recognized where he was in God's prophetic plan, what did that lead Daniel to do? It led Daniel to prayer. And the first thing that Daniel prayed was for God to have mercy on him for his sins and for the sins of God's people, Israel. Daniel turned to the Lord in prayer. Here he was simply following out the pattern laid out in Scripture. When, when King Solomon, for example, prophesied that a day would come when God's people would rebel against him and be sent into exile. And King Solomon said, when that day happens, what are you to do as God's people? You are to turn to the Lord and repent with all your heart. Daniel had known the word of God. He trusted the word of God. And so when he read prophetic words like Solomon, hey, you're going to be in exile. What do you do when you're in exile? You humble yourself before the Lord and you repent of your sins and God will restore you. See, Daniel understood all of this because he was in the word, he believed the word, and he sought to honor God in the pattern of God's word. Number four, we see Daniel's posture. <coughs> we see Daniel's posture in that he was a man who desired God's glory. You know, we, we saw two weeks ago, Pastor Stephen shared this so clearly. What was Daniel's prayer all about? Yes, there was confession of sin, but, but the primary goal of Daniel's prayer was to give glory to God's name and to elevate God's name and that God's city would be restored and that the temple would be restored and that all of this would transpire for God's glory. Daniel's been in captivity 65 years 
And friends, his prayer was never about me. It was always about he. He sought to live for God's glory, and that was the motivation of his prayer life. You know, and I think we've, there's a lesson in that for us. So oftentimes, our prayer lives revolve around our needs. You know, Lord, it's, it's about me and me and me and, you know, why me and woe is me, and, right? And, and that's okay because God cares about our needs too. But our prayer life should also be directed towards the goal of God's glory and that his name would be famous, and that his will would be accomplished. As Jesus said in the Lord's Prayer, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so I think we need to remember that, friends, that there's a balance. It's not just, prayer isn't just about me, 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 me. Prayer should also be about he, 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 he. Giving God glory, the glory that he's due. That was Daniel's posture. And as a result of this, we see fifthly here in our passage, what was the result for Daniel? Daniel experienced God's love. Gabriel tells Daniel in verse 23, at the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Friends, understand this. God's pleasure and our posture go hand in hand. You want to be a person who experiences the pleasure of God? Humble yourself before the Lord. As James 4.10 says, when we humble ourselves before the Lord, he will exalt you. Other translations translate verse 23 as Daniel, you are highly esteemed. Friends, when, 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 if there was one request, one desire, one wish of my heart, I would love it for the creator of the universe to say of me, Jason, you are highly esteemed. What greater honor could any of us have than the creator of the universe declaring that in my eyes you are highly esteemed? How did that happen for Daniel? It happened because his posture before God. He was a man who humbled his heart before the Lord and God exalted him. He was esteemed. He was greatly loved. You know, friends, it's interesting. We've talked about throughout this series. I've challenged you a number of times. Dare to be a Daniel. Dare to be a Daniel. And when we think about that idea, dare to be a Daniel, we, we think about, you know, the, the idea that we're going to refuse to compromise. We're going to stand up to tyrants. We're, we're, we're going to speak truth to authority. That's all a part of daring to be a Daniel. But friends, understand, being a Daniel begins first with a life in the word and a devotion to prayer and a desire to honor God and to see his name famous throughout the world. If you want to be a Daniel, dare to be a Daniel, it begins with being a man or a woman who seeks to follow the posture of Daniel. That's where it all begins. And so Daniel had the right posture before the Lord, and as a result of Daniel's posture, God then honors him with this incredible prophecy. He sends his angel Gabriel to give Daniel wisdom and understanding about God's plan for the ages. So we see, secondly, here in our passage this morning, unlocking God's plan for the ages. Verse 24 reveals for us God's purpose. What, what is God's purpose for the future? What is God's plan for the ages? Daniel here had been thinking about and praying about Israel's 70 years of captivity. 
But as we come to verse 24, what we discover is that God revealed that his plans for his people extended far beyond their return to the promised land. Daniel's praying about, Lord, is the 70 years up? Are we going to go home to Jerusalem? Are we going to rebuild your temple? And God says to Daniel, essentially, yes, but my plans go far beyond that, Daniel. And look at what verse 24 tells us. Verse 24 says, 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. 70 weeks. Now, this prophecy is about these 70 weeks. And the important thing that we understand is when Daniel receives this word of 70 weeks, these 70 weeks are what are called in Hebrew heptads, weeks of years. So 70 weeks of seven years. This is, this is what the prophecy is all about. In other words, it's really a prophecy about a 490-year period of history. So when the angel Gabriel declares to Daniel, 70 weeks are decreed about your people, about Israel, this is a prophecy that's going to transpire over 490 years. Seven times seven years. 70 weeks of seven years. Okay? The precedent for this in scripture goes all the way back to the book of Leviticus. In Leviticus chapter 25, verses 8 through 12, God had ordained for the people of Israel to follow this this, uh, this, this heptad unit of time measurement in regards to the year of Jubilee. God told his people in Leviticus 25 that there would be seven weeks of seven years. Seven times seven is what? 49, right? And in Leviticus 25, God tells his people there would be seven weeks of seven years. On the 49th year, that would be the end. And then on the 50th year, you would celebrate the year of Jubilee. And the year of Jubilee was a time where every 50th year, based on this unit of measurement, seven times seven, these heptads, every 50th year, the, the people would forgive all their debts, all the slaves would be set free, and the land would be allowed to rest from any crop production for a full year. It was called the year of Jubilee. In fact, one of the reasons why God's people ended up in exile in Babylon is because they failed to keep the year of Jubilee faithfully we learn that his, their exile was directly resulted of ignoring the seven times seven, all right? So there was precedent. When Daniel heard this, 70 weeks are decreed for your people, he would have understood these weren't 70 literal weeks. These were 70 weeks of seven years, 490 years. Now, we need to understand that this is a whole unit of time, this 490 years, and this whole unit of time, some of it would take place in the immediate future. Some of it would take place in the near distant future. And some of that 490 years would take place in the far distant future. But this prophecy is about this 490 years as a whole. Now, now this might help you understand how to, how to, to, to frame this prophecy. Imagine you go home today after church and you've got a pie, okay? You bake the pie and right now you can just taste that pie. You're ready to eat this pie after lunch. And, and so you go home and you eat this pie and you eat, eat three quarters of that pie, okay? But you've got a quarter of the pie left over. And so you say to yourself, you know what? I'm going to put that quarter of the pie in the freezer and save it for a future time. And so you freeze that pie. You eat a quarter of it today 
And a year from now, you go to your freezer and you say, oh, wow, I still got this pie I forgot about. And you pull out that quarter of the pie. Now, friends, it's still the same pie, isn't it? Right? It's still the same pie. We're still talking about the same pie. It's just that some of it's already been eaten and some of it is being reserved for the future. That's how we need to understand the 70 times 7, the 490 years. Some of it was going to be eaten in history already and some of it is going to be eaten in the future. Okay? Now, what was God's purpose for this 490-year period of history? Well, Daniel is given six reasons from the angel Gabriel. Gabriel tells Daniel, number one, this 490-year period is about finishing the transgression. What does that mean? What that means, friends, is that God is going to bring an end to Israel's long history of rebellion against him. And this is going to take place at the second coming of Jesus Christ at the end of the tribulation. God is going to restore Israel. And he's going to once and for all time finish their transgression and rebellion against him. This long pattern of rebellion by God's people, Israel, that we see throughout scripture is going to be once and for all done away with at the second coming of Jesus Christ. In Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, Zechariah tells us about the day of the Lord when Jesus returns and he is going to pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one who mourns for an only child. In chapter 13, verse 1, Zechariah then tells us that I am going to unleash a fountain that is going to cleanse Israel of all their sins. God is going to remove the transgression of his people once and for all at the second coming of Jesus Christ. The the second purpose of this 490-year period is going to be to put an end to sin. Now, the language here in the Hebrew has the connotation of restraint, holding sin back, shutting sin down, right? God is going to restrain the possibility of sin amongst his people once and for all. Now, this purpose obviously awaits its fulfillment at Christ's second coming and his millennial reign and ultimately his reign into eternity, right? We know today that sin hasn't been put to an end, has it, right? You just watch the news. We, we know in our own reality, right? Sin is an ever-present reality. This hasn't happened yet, but it's going to happen one day. God is going to put an end to sin. The third purpose of this 490-year period to atone for iniquity. Atonement is a word that means to cover or to purge one's sins. And this purpose, this purpose has already taken place. When did this purpose take place? 2,000 years ago at the coming of Jesus Christ, the first coming. This is what we celebrated last week on Good Friday, that Jesus came to atone for our sin, to cover our sins, to purge us of our sins through his death on the cross. As, the, as the John the Baptist declared in John 1.29, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Right? So, so this purpose has already been fulfilled at the first coming of Jesus Christ. The fourth purpose, to bring in everlasting righteousness. Now, again, this purpose clearly finds its fulfillment in Christ's millennial reign. We aren't living in a period of everlasting righteousness right now, are we? But when Jesus comes again and he sets up his millennial reign, we're going to experience true righteousness, everlasting righteousness. Look at what David prophesies in Psalm 72. 
David says in Psalm 72, give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. Down in verses 7 and 8, at the end of this prophecy, may he be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days, may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Friends, none of this has happened yet, has it? But it's going to happen one day when Jesus returns and sets up his millennial reign and he will rule over this whole world from sea to sea in righteousness. Man, are you looking forward to that day? I know I am. And it's going to happen. It's going to come to pass. The fifth purpose for this 490-year period, Daniel's told, is to seal both vision and the prophet. Now, what does this mean? Well, friends, think about this. When Jesus Christ rules and reigns over this earth, when sin has been removed once and for all time, the world is no longer going to have any need for visions or prophecy. Why? Because God himself is going to speak directly to us personally through Jesus who is going to reign over this world. We're not going to need visions. We're not going to need prophets anymore because we're going to hear directly from God himself. And then sixth, the sixth purpose that we're given is to anoint a most holy place. This here is a reference to the millennial temple in Jerusalem from which Jesus will reign over all the earth. If you want to read about the millennial temple in Jerusalem, Ezekiel chapter 40 through 44 is all about the millennial temple in Jerusalem from which Jesus is going to reign. In fact, let's, let's take a look at these, these passages from Ezekiel chapter 43, 1 through 7. This is going to take place at the second coming of Jesus Christ. Jesus is going to return. He's going to set foot on the Mount of Olives to the east of Jerusalem, to the east of the temple. And this is going to happen. Then he led me to the gate, the gate facing east. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the east. What's to the east of this gate? The Mount of Olives, where Jesus is going to land on his second coming. It says he's going to come from the east. And the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters. And the earth shone with his glory. And the vision I saw was just like the vision that I had seen when he came to destroy the city. And just like the vision that I had seen by the Kabar Canal. And I fell on my face as the glory of the Lord entered the temple. This is all talking about the second coming of Jesus. He's going to enter into the temple by the gate facing east. There it is again. The spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court. And behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. While the man was standing beside me, I heard one speaking to me out of the temple. And he said to me, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet where I will dwell in the midst of the people of Israel forever and the house of Israel shall no more defile my holy name, neither they nor their kings by their whoring and by the dead bodies of their kings at their high places. Again, this is obviously a future event that's going to take place. When is it going to take place? It's going to take place at the second coming of Jesus Christ as he sets up his millennial reign on this earth. He is going to fill the temple. By the way, the temple will be rebuilt in the future. There's obviously a temple there. The temple is going to be rebuilt. Jesus is going to enter that temple and he's going to rule and reign and his glory is going to be displayed for all to see there in Jerusalem. And by the way, How's he going to enter the temple? He's going to enter the temple from the eastern gate. 
the gate facing the Mount of Olives, where the Bible tells us Jesus is going to return at his second coming. Now, here's an interesting passage. Ezekiel chapter 44 tells us this. Then he brought me back to the outer gate of the sanctuary, which faces east, and the gate was shut. And the Lord said to me, this gate shall remain shut. It shall not be open, and no one shall enter by it, for the Lord, the God of Israel, has entered by it. Therefore, it shall remain shut. Only the prince may sit in it. That's the Messiah. Only the prince may sit in it to eat bread before the Lord. He shall enter by way of the vestibule of the gate and shall go out by the same way. Ezekiel is given this prophecy that this gate, that he sees the Messiah enter in glory at a second coming, that this gate is shut. And it's going to remain shut. And guess what? If you go to Israel today, and if you stand on the Mount of Olives, and you look over to the walls of Jerusalem, to the eastern gate, guess what you're going to see? You'll see the eastern gate, but the eastern gate is completely bricked up. You see, back in 1500 BC, the Muslim ruler, Suleiman the Magnificent, read this prophecy And he said, wait a minute, if the Messiah is going to come through the eastern gate, guess what? He's not coming through my gate. And he sealed up that gate. And to this very day, that gate remains sealed. And that gate is going to remain sealed until Jesus returns. And when Jesus returns, he's going to blast that gate open, and he is going to take his rightful place, ruling and reigning from the temple once again. Isn't that awesome? Friends, God's word is true every single word of it. And when God declares something prophetically that's going to come to pass, it plays out in history as literal truth. Just like Daniel trusted the word of Jeremiah, we can trust the word of God when he prophesies about what's to come in the future. Now, God says he's going to accomplish all these things during these 70 prophetic weeks, this period of 490 years. But next... As we're going to see in verse 25, God gets even more specific about how his plan for the ages will unfold. He begins by revealing it to us in point number three, the Messiah's promise. Look at verse 25 again. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, that's a reference to the Messiah, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and a moat, but in a troubled time. Friends, I mentioned this in my sermon last week at Easter, that the whole Testament is filled with incredible prophecies pointing us to the coming of Jesus Christ. Over 300 prophecies and allusions to the coming of Jesus as the Messiah. I mean, the Bible gets so specific, it's incredible. It's like a bullseye, right? The Bible tells us back in Genesis, the Messiah is going to be born of the human race. Then it tells us in Genesis 12 that he's going to come out of the line of Abraham. He's going to be a Jew, a descendant of Abraham. Then it tells us in Genesis 49, the very tribe he's going to come from, the tribe of Judah. And then it tells us the family lineage that the Messiah is going to come from from the line of david and then it tells us how the messiah is going to come he's going to be born of a virgin and then it tells us where the messiah is going to be born he's going to be born in bethlehem and then the bible even tells us when when the messiah is going to come and it tells us when in daniel chapter 9 verse 25 now we use the esv version here at lakes free church 
I like the ESV version. I think it's a great version of scripture. However, the ESV does a horrible job translating Daniel 9.25. I don't know why, but they are the only Bible translation in existence that I know of that creates a separation between the 62 weeks and the seven weeks. So it, it reads very funky, and it doesn't translate well to the way the rest of the Bible translations translate it. Now, again, I don't know why they did it that way, but when you look at all of the other translations of Daniel 9.25, the NIV, the NASB, the New King James, the New Living Translation, the seven years and the 62 years are not separate. They're meant to go together. They're meant to be a continual unit of time. Seven sevens and 62 sevens. Seven weeks and 62 weeks. Seven weeks, 62 weeks. Seven sets of seven plus 62 sets of seven. All right? So these time frames are meant to be together. Now, again, we're talking about heptads, weeks of years, periods of seven years. So we're talking about seven weeks of seven years and 62 weeks of seven years. Now, the prophecy in Daniel 9.25 tells us from the issuing of the decree to the arrival of the anointed one, Messiah the Prince, there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. Now, this is fascinating, friends. The Bible tells us exactly when Jesus was going to come as the Messiah. And when was he going to come? We'll take a look at this prophecy, how this works out. Seven, 62 weeks plus seven weeks of years. Again, we're talking about weeks of years. 62 plus 7 equals what? 69, right? This is basic math, right? 62 plus 7. That's not a trick question. So what we're talking about here is 69 weeks of 7 years. 69 times 7 is what? 483 years. So Daniel gets this prophecy from God through Gabriel that there are going to be 7 weeks and 62 weeks from the issuing of the decree to the anointed one, the prince. Now, here's the thing. Bible scholars solve this equation in four different ways. But the interesting thing about how they solve this equation is each of the four different ways all points us to a period between 4 BC and 33 AD, which is right in the time frame of Jesus' life and ministry. I've always been partial to a solution that starts with a decree issued by King Artaxerxes that we read about in Ezra chapter 7, verse 11. And we know that this decree was issued in 457 B.C. Now, this decree issued in 457 B.C., if you add 483 years, that takes you to the year 26 A.D., now, we know from history and from Scripture that Jesus was born in 4 B.C. Okay, our, our calendars were off by four years. Jesus was born in 4 B.C. Now, 4 B.C. to 26 A.D. is how many years? 30 years, right? Now, here's where it gets real fascinating. The Luke, in his gospel, tells us in Luke 3.23 that Jesus was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. From the issuing of the decree to the anointed one, Messiah the Prince, will be seven sevens and 62 sevens, 483 years. That takes us to 26 AD when Jesus was 30 years old and he announced himself as the Messiah. Isn't that awesome? 
Again, friends, the Bible is absolutely true. God's prophetic word is clear, and it points us directly to the coming of the promised one, the Messiah. Now, here's the deal. God has made this so clear to us, right? He, he's pointed us clearly to Jesus throughout the Old Testament. Throughout, throughout the Old Testament, he was preparing the world for the coming of the Messiah. Throughout the Old Testament, he had clearly revealed to his people his plan for sending his son, the one who would redeem us from our bondage to sin. Remember last week, we talked about Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Why do we trust that? Why do we trust that Jesus' gift of salvation was efficacious, that it did something for us? We trust that because God had prophesied it and the prophecies came true. And then when Jesus came, he himself prophesied, I'm going to die, but rise again three days later. We saw that last week. That prophecy came true. Friends, we have great reason to put our hope and trust in Jesus because he is the one the Bible claims him to be, the promised Messiah, the Savior of the world. And God had pointed us very clearly to him. Friends, I want to tell you this morning, if you're here today and you've never put your trust in Jesus as your Savior and Lord, man, what are you waiting for? Do not miss out on the hope and assurance of knowing that your sins have been forgiven by the anointed one, the prince, the one who was promised to come. He died on the cross for you so that you could be restored, redeemed, forgiven, made right with your creator God. And we trust this because God's prophetic word is true. We're not taking a blind leap into the dark hoping that this is all true. No, like God's prophetic word is true. And the Messiah has come and he's fulfilled these prophecies. And because of that, we can have confidence and assurance that his death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave saves us of our sins and gives us the hope of new and eternal life. This is all trustworthy and true don't miss out on putting your hope in jesus christ now friends here so far we've seen that god's plan for the ages has been partially fulfilled in the first coming of our lord but what we're going to discover next is that god has even more to say about his plan for the ages and in verses 26 through 27 we're going to discover that god's plan for the ages also involves the destruction of jerusalem and then a 70th week a seven-year period of tribulation marked out by the rule and reign of the Antichrist, followed directly by the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now you're going to have to come back next week to hear about that. <laughs> because unfortunately you have a pastor who is too long-winded and can't get through his whole sermon in time. But we're going to talk about this 70th week next week. Now here's the deal. Again, we're eating a piece of pie. This is God's prophetic pie. So far, we've eaten a good chunk of it, 483 years worth of it, right? But that seventh week of seven years has been put in the freezer. And it's going to come in the future. We're going to pull it out of the freezer in the future, and we're going to eat it, and we're going to experience the rest of the 490 years of prophecy. But right now, it's in the freezer, and we're waiting for it. But friends, guess what? If the other 483 years of that pie came true, you can be confident that that seventh week is going to happen. 
And again, we're going to talk about that seventh week next week. But this morning, we're going to close in a word of prayer. John and our worship team are going to come lead us in one last song of praise to King Jesus, the one who rules and reigns over history, the one who we have great confidence and reasons to put our hope in. So let's stand and let's pray, and then let's worship Jesus again together. Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for your prophetic word. We thank you for your promises. We thank you for the assurance that we have because of these things. And Lord, we worship you because you are worthy of our praise. You truly are the king of history, the sovereign God who rules and reigns over all time, the God who rules and reigns over each of our lives as well. And so we can put our hope and trust in you. Our lives are not dictated by fate or chance or happenstance. No, there is a God who has marked out all of our days, who is sovereign and in control. And we thank you, Lord, that we can trust in you. We pray all this in your great name, Jesus. Amen.